deathbed scenes by Davis W. Clark, compiled in the year 1851. The Dying Backslider William Pope Laugh, you profane, and swell, and burst, with bold impiety, yet shall you live forever cursed, and seek in vain to die. The awful and affecting cases of Newport, Altamont, and Spira have long confirmed the witty truth that it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. The following narrative, though less known, is not less awful, nor less impressive. Its truth is confirmed by the joint testimony of various respectable witnesses. One of these is Mr. Simpson, the well-known author of A Plea for Religion. He saw the unhappy subject of this narrative once, but declared he never desired to see him again. The melancholy affair happened in the year 1797 and excited considerable attention in the town and neighborhood of Bolton. Did deistical brethren of the unhappy man, whose miseries this account describes, wish to persuade the public that he was out of his mind, which was by no means the case? He was in the possession of his reason, but evidently given over by God to a hardened heart. William Pope, an inhabitant of Bolton in Lincolnshire, was a member of the Methodist Society and appeared to have been formerly a partaker of genuine repentance and of such faith in the adorable Savior as became the source of sacred peace and joy. He had a wife who enjoyed much of the divine comforts of religion and who, after adorning her profession upon earth and the full assurance of faith and hope, triumphantly fell asleep in Jesus. After her death, his zeal for religion declined, and by associating with some backsliding professors, he entered the path to eternal ruin. His new companions ridiculed the eternity of future misery and professed a belief in the redemption of devils. William became an admirer of their scheme, a frequenter with them of the public house, and in time a common drunkard. On one occasion of this kind, being upbraided as a Methodist, he replied, I am not a Methodist now. It would be better for me were that were the case, for while I was a Methodist, I was happy as an angel, but now I am as miserable as a devil. Religion being neglected, his mind turned to politics and these became his favorite study. Proceeding onward from bad to worse, he became the disciple of Thomas Paine and associated himself with a number of deistical persons at Bolton who assembled together on Sundays to confirm each other in their infidelity. The oaths and imprecations which were here uttered are too horrible to relate. While they amused themselves with throwing the word of God on the floor, kicking it around the room, and treading it under their feet. Here he plunged deep into the whirlpool of infidelity, and dared to speak contemptuously of that adorable Redeemer whom he had formerly called his Savior. The mercy he had long abused was now withdrawn. The judgments of the Most High overtook him, and a lingering consumption became the harbinger of death. April 17, 1797 I was desired, says Mr. Rhodes, a narrator of the following account to visit William Pope. For some months he had been afflicted with a consumptive complaint. At the same time, the state of his mind was deplorably wretched. When I first saw him, he said, Last night I believe I was in hell. 
and felt the horrors and torments of the damned. But God has brought me back again and given me a little longer respite. My mind is also alleviated a little. The gloom of guilty terror does not sit so heavy upon me as it did, and I have something like a faint hope that after all I have done, God may yet save me. After exhorting him to repentance and confidence in the Almighty Savior, I prayed with him and left him. In the evening he sent for me again. I found him in the utmost distress, overwhelmed with bitter anguish and despair. I endeavored to encourage him and mentioned the hope which he had spoken of in the morning. He answered, I believe it was merely nature, that, finding a little ease from the horrors I'd felt in the night, I was a little lifted up on that account. I spoke to him of the infinite merit of the great Redeemer, of his sufficiency, willingness, and promises to save the chief of sinners, who penitently turned to him. I mentioned several cases in which God had saved the greatest of sinners, but he answered, No case of any that have been mentioned is comparable to mine. I have no contrition. I cannot repent. God will damn me. I know the day of grace is past. God has said, of such as are in my case, I will laugh at your calamity and mock when your fear comes. I said, Have you ever known anything of the mercy and love of God? Oh, yes. He replied many years ago, I thought I truly repented and sought the Lord. At one time in particular in my distress and penitential sorrow, I cried to the Lord with all my heart, and he heard me, so I thought, and delivered me from all of my troubles and filled me with peace and heavenly consolation. This happiness continued for some time. I was then truly devoted to God. But in the end, I began to keep company, which was hurtful to me, and also gave way to unprofitable conversation till I lost all the comfortable sense of God and the things of God. Thus I fell from one thing to another till I plunged into open wickedness. Indeed, he several times complained to me that the company he associated with had been of irreparable injury to him. I prayed with him and had great hopes of his salvation. He appeared much affected and begged I would represent his case in our society and pray for him. I did as he desired that night in our congregation. The people were much affected at the account, and many hearty petitions were put up for him. Mr. Rose, being obliged to go into the country for a few days, his fellow laborer, Mr. Barraclough, visited William Pope and gave the following account of what he witnessed. Quote, April 18th. I went to see William Pope. He had all the appearance of horror and guilt, which a soul feels when under a sense of the wrath of God. As soon as he saw me, he exclaimed, You are come to see me, one who is damned forever. I answered, I hope not. Christ came to save the chief of sinners. He replied, I have rejected him. I have denied him. Therefore has he cast me off forever. I know the day of grace is past, gone, gone, never more to return. I entreated him not to draw hasty conclusions respecting the will of God, and I asked him if he could pray or felt a desire that God would give him a broken and a contrite heart. He answered me, I cannot pray. My heart is quite hardened. I have no desire to receive any blessing at the hands of God and then immediately cried out, Oh, the hell, the 
torment a fire that I feel within me. Oh, eternity, eternity, to dwell forever with devils and damned spirits in the burning lake must be my portion, and that justly, yea, very justly, and ever to set before him the all-sufficient merits of Christ and the virtue of his atoning blood, assuring him that through faith in the Redeemer he might be forgiven. He fixed his eyes on me and said, Oh, that I had the smallest beam of hope, but I have not, nor can I ever have it again. I requested him to join with me and another friend in prayer, to which he replied, It is all in vain. However, we prayed. It has some degree of access to the throne of grace for him. When I was about to depart, he looked at me with inexpressible anguish and said, Do you remember preaching from these words in Jeremiah? Be instructed, O Jerusalem, lest my soul depart from thee. I replied that I recollected the time very well and asked, Did God's Spirit depart from you at that time? He replied, No, not at that time, for I again felt him strive with me. But, oh, soon after I grieved ye, I quenched him, and now it is all over with me forever. On Thursday, I found him groaning under the weight of the displeasure of God. His eyes rolled to and fro. He lifted up his hands and with vehemence cried out, Oh, the burning flame, the hell, the pain I feel. Rocks, yea, burning mountains fall upon me and cover me. Ah, no, they cannot hide me from his presence who fills the universe. I spoke a little of the justice and power of Jehovah, to which he made this pertinent reply. He is just, and is now punishing and will continue to punish me for my sins. He is powerful and make me strong to bear the torments of hell to all eternity. I answered, God is just to forgive us and powerful to rescue us from the dominion of sin and Satan. Jesus came to destroy the works of the devil, and I trust he will soon manifest his salvation to you. He replied, You do not know what I have done. My crimes are not of an ordinary nature. I have done, done the deed, the horrible, damnable deed. I wanted him to explain himself, but he sunk down into stupid sullenness. I prayed with him and found more freedom than I expected. While I was on my knees, he appeared to be in an agony. At length, he broke out to the astonishment of all present. Glory be to God, I am out of hell yet. Glory be to God, I am out of hell yet. We said, there is mercy for you. He answered, do you think so? Oh, that I could feel a desire for it. We entreated him to pray, but he answered, I cannot pray. God will not have anything to do with me. Oh, the fire I feel within me. It then sunk down again into a state of sullen reserve. I prayed with him once more, and while I was thus employed, he said with inexpressible rage, I will not have salvation at the hands of God. No, no, I will not ask it of him. After a short pause, he cried out, Oh, how I long to be in the bottomless pit, in the lake which burns with fire and brimstone. He then lay quiet for some time, and we took our leave for the day. The day following, I saw him again. This is a painful visit. His language and visage were most dreadful. Some of his expressions were so diabolical that I could not dare to repeat them. I said to him, William, your pain is inexpressible. He groaned, and then with a loud voice cried out, 
eternity alone will explain my torments. I tell you again, I am damned. I will not have salvation. We desired he would pray for mercy, but he exclaimed, Nothing for me but hell. Come eternal torments. You will soon see I shall drop into the flames of the pit. I said, Do you ask the Lord to be merciful to you? Upon which he called me to him as if to speak to me. But as soon as I came within his reach, he struck me on the head with all of his might and gnashing his teeth, cried out, God will not hear your prayer. While we were on our knees praying for him, he shouted aloud, God will confound you, and you cannot pray. Oh God, don't hear them, for I will not be saved. His words were accompanied with the strongest marks of rage and inveterate malice. And he cried out, I hate everything that God has made. Only I have no hatred to the devil. I wish to be with him. He seemed to be in his element while speaking of the devil as a sovereign lord that might shortly reign supreme. These things greatly distressed us, and we were afraid that he was given up to a reprobate mind. On the 21st, Mr. Rhodes, having returned from the country, went again to see William Pope and gives the following account of his visit. I found him in the most deplorable condition. He charged me with telling him a lie in my last visit by saying that I believed there was salvation for him. I replied that I had not told a lie, but verily believed there was salvation if he would accept of it. He was now in a tempest of rage and despair. His looks, his agonies and dreadful words are not to be expressed. Speaking to him of mercy or a savior seemed to increase the horrors of his mind. When I mentioned the power of the Almighty to save, God, he said, is almighty to damn me. He has already sealed my damnation, and I long to be in hell. While two or three of us were praying for him, he threw at us anything on which he could lay his hands. His state appeared an awful confirmation of the truth, justice, and being of God, of an immortal soul in man, and of the evil of sin. Who but a righteous God could inflict such punishments? What but sin could deserve them? What but an intelligent immortal soul could bear them? Next day, Mr. Rhodes called again to see William Pope. The dreadful tempest of rage and defiance seemed to have ceased. He now appeared full of timidity and fear, and perpetual dread of the powers of darkness, and apprehensive of their coming a dragman away to the regions of misery. But no marks of penitent contrition appeared about him. He said he was full of blasphemy. He said it was full of blasphemy, and he often laid his hand upon his mouth, lest it should force its way forth. He complained that it had done so, and that more would force its way. In the afternoon of the 24th, Mr. Barraclough again called upon him. For some time he would not speak, but after being repeatedly asked how he felt his mind, he replied, Bad, bad. Mr. Barraclough said, God can make it better. What? Make me better? I tell you no. I have done the horrible deed and it cannot be undone again. I feel I must declare to you what it is for which I am suffering. The holy and just one. I have crucified the Son of God afresh and counted the blood of the covenant an unholy thing. Oh, that wicked and horrible deed of blasphemy against the Holy Ghost, which I know I have committed. It is for this I am suffering the torture and horrors of guilt and a sense of the wrath. God. He then suddenly looked upwards. 
towards the chamber floor and started back. He trembled, gnashed his teeth, and cried out, Do you not see? Do you not see him? He is coming for me. The devil will fetch me. I know he will. Come, O devil, and take me. It is time Mr. Eskrick came into the room to whom William said, George, I am lost. Mr. Eskrick replied, Do not say so, but pray earnestly to God to give you true repentance, and who can tell but the Lord may deliver you this day from the power of sin and Satan. He answered, I cannot pray. No, no, I will not pray. Do not I tell you there is no salvation for me? I want nothing but hell. Sometime after, he said, Undone forever, doomed to eternal pain, to the burning flame. Afterward, on a sudden, he sprung up from his seat and cried out, Your prayers will avail nothing. God will not hear you. A friend prayed, but during prayer, when any petition was offered for him, he sullenly said, I will not have any favor at his hands, uttering also other expressions too dreadful to be repeated. On the 25th, says Mr. Rhodes, I called to see William Pope and asked him how he was. He answered, Very bad in body and soul. There is nothing good about me. I said to him, William, if God were willing to save you for Christ's sake, and if you knew that he were so, would you not be willing to be saved? No, he answered. I have no willingness nor any desire to be saved. You will not believe me when I tell you it is all over. If I had a million of worlds, I would give them all to undo what I have done. I told him I was glad to hear that confession from him, and hoped that through the violence of his terrors he had mistaken his case and imagined against himself what was not true. I tell you, he replied, I know hell burns within me now, and the moment my soul quits the body, I shall be in such torments as none can conceive. I have denied the Savior. I have blasphemed the Most High, and have said, Oh, that I were stronger than God. He was quite unwilling that I should attempt to pray for him. I visited him the next morning when he appeared to be hardened beyond all feeling of remorse or fear. His violent agitations, dread and horror, had ceased their rage. His infidel principles returned upon him, and he gave full place to them and gloried in them. On my next visit, after a little conversation, he spoke with the greatest contempt of the Lord Jesus Christ, and derided his merits and the virtue of his atoning blood. The words he used were too detestable to be repeated. The day following, he appeared much in the same state of mind, full of a diabolical spirit. Hell and perdition were his principal theme, and apparently without terror. At a visit which a pious young man made him on the 1st of May, he said, I've denied the Lord Jesus Christ and the word of God. This is my hell. After some shocking expressions, he added, My pain is all within. If this were removed, I should be better. Oh, what a terrible thing it is. Once I might be saved and would not. Now I would and must not. He sat a little while, and then, says the narrator, cast his eyes upon me with the most affecting look I ever saw, and shook his head. At this sight, I could not refrain from tears. At another time, he said, I attempted to pray, but when I had said a word or two, I was so confounded I could say no more. At this time, one of his old companions in sin, coming to see him, William said to him, 
I desire you will go away, for I have ruined myself by being too much in such a company as yours. The man was unwilling to depart, but he insisted on his going. Some time after, the same young man and some other friends sat up with him again and would have prayed with him, but he would not allow them. He said it did him hurt, and added, I am best content when I am cursing. I curse frequently to myself, and it gives me ease. God has made a public example of me for a warning to others. And if they will not take it, everlasting misery will be their portion. Mr. Rhodes made him several other visits, and in all of his visits found him perfectly averse to prayer, and to everything that is good. Not the least mark of contrition, not the most distant desire for salvation. When, says he, on one occasion I attempted to pray, he said, Do not pray to Jesus Christ for me. He can do me no good, nor is there any being that can. When I began to pray, he blasphemed in the most horrible manner and dared the Almighty to do his worst and to send him to hell. On the 24th, his state was not to be described. His eyes darted hate and distraction. He grinned at me and told me how he despised and hated my prayers. At the same time, he exclaimed, Curse on you all! On the 26th, I visited him for the last time. I saw his dissolution was at hand. My soul pitied him. My painful feelings on his account cannot be expressed. I spoke to him with tenderness and plainness about the state of his soul and of another world, but he answered me with a high degree of displeasure. His countenance at the same time was horrible beyond expression, and with great vehemence he commanded me to cease speaking to him. I then told him it would be the last time that ever I should see him in this world, and asked if he were willing for me to put up another prayer for him. He then, with great strength, considering his weakness, cried out, No! This is the last word which I heard him speak. I left him, and he died that evening. The Death of an Aged Backslider On a bleak winter's night in the year 1844, after having retired to rest, I was suddenly aroused by the repeated mention of my name. On hastening to discover the cause, I found that two Christian persons had come, earnestly to request me to visit an aged but dying apostate. The distance from the house of the sufferer and a slight indisposition of body at first induced me to refuse. Oh, come, do come, she is dying and says she is eternally lost. Overpowered by their solicitations and the sense of duty, and indulging the thought that perhaps God designed me to be the messenger of peace to the poor creature, I felt compelled to accompany them. The night was cheerless, dark, and dreary. The sky was starless, and everything around the scene but as the image of the sad scene to which we were hastening. The wind whistled wildly and appeared as if it conveyed with its double-tongued voice the groans of the dying sinner. This added to the death-like stillness of all besides, predisposed my mind for the chamber of sickness. As we approached the house, our cries of despair were distinctly heard, and with these ringing in my ears, I was ushered into her room. From the snows of time, which were scattered thickly over her head and the numerous wrinkles on her brow, it was evident that she had long since passed a boundary of threescore years and ten. As soon as she saw me with a wild, fitful light, shooting into her sunken eyes, which were rolling fiercely in their deep sockets, and in a tone expressive of the awful agony of her soul, she exclaimed in the language of the gathering demoniac, 
Art thou come hither to torment me before the time? No, I replied, but rather to assist you in obtaining the mercy you need. Mercy? There's none for me. I tell you I am forsaken by God. I loved him once, but now. And an involuntary shudder shook her frame. The same blessing you then enjoyed is held out to you now upon the exercise of a similar faith, I replied. I cannot, I dare not, I will not believe again, I have been deceived. The peculiar emphasis laid on the latter part of this sentence induced me to make inquiries as to her previous history. It appears that early in life, she became seriously awakened under the ministry of a devoted servant of Christ, and soon after, as she thought, she obtained peace with God and joined herself to the independent church in the town in which she then lived. For many years she adorned the Christian profession by her most exemplary character. Her evidence of acceptance with God was undoubted, and fear seldom disturbed her peace. She emphatically walked high in salvation and the climbs of bliss. At length, from the peculiar tennis to which she weakly listened, she imbibed it in a carnally presumptuous way doctrine of final perseverance. The influence this had upon her mind was soon perceptible. Others have held this doctrine in connection with much prayerful jealousy over themselves, but she became indifferent as to her present experience. The power of religion was lost. Reality declined into a dead formality, and yet when spoken to on the subject, she regarded herself as perfectly safe and unable finally to fall. She eventually became careless in her attendance on the means of grace and a discharge of religious duties, and left the society. Being now free from the salutary restraint which union with the Christian church imposes, she sinned with greediness. When warned of her danger and referred to her preceding life, she seemed devoid of all religious feeling, and in extenuation of her sin would boastingly urge that she could not be lost, for she was once a child of God. Her increasing years only increased her guilt and hardened her once tender heart. She continued to abuse the goodness of God and presumptuously sinned that grace might abound till old age with its attendant infirmities and inflictions later upon the sick bed. Now in death, chilling grasp was felt, and the dreadful realities of an eternal world were disclosing themselves. She saw and felt the rottenness of that foundation on which she had built her hopes of salvation trembling under a fearful apprehension of that which awaited her, and with the full consciousness of her past folly, she uttered the words, I have been deceived. The beams of the morning sun now began to scatter themselves upon the earth, and daybreak gradually to dawn, but no ray of light to shine upon the poor sufferer's soul. Night, the night of life, the night of death, the fearful presage of the blackness of darkness forever thickly enveloped her spirit. I returned to her room, resolving to make another, perhaps a last effort to snatch this brand from the burning over whose lake she was suspended by the attenuated and breaking thread of life. She appeared to be grappling with her conquering foe. Her bosom heaved heavily, and her fearful sighs echoed through the room. I opened up the 51st Psalm and endeavored to read the portions most appropriate to her melancholy case. Unexpectedly, she stretched forth her trembling and almost nerveless arm, seized the book and tore the leaf from the sacred volume. I knelt down to pray. As soon as I commenced, she mocked me in the most terrific manner, repeatedly exclaiming, Don't pray for me! Don't pray for me! 
It increases my misery. I'm lost. I'm lost. For merchant necessity and being completely wearied, I soon after left her. During the day, I was informed that she remained much in the same state, frequently blaspheming the God of heaven and invoking his wrath. The next morning I called and found a taper of life nearly extinguished. Her tongue had ceased to lend its aid to increase her guilt. But alas, although unable to speak, her horrid glances, her awful groans, her significant sighs, and her continual restlessness betokened the agony of her mind. I engaged in prayer with her, but under the same depressed feelings as above mentioned. Circumstances afterwards prevented my seeing her. A few days subsequent to my last visit, a deep tone bell announced a fearful fact of the poor creature's death. Her remains were committed to the melancholy grave by the officiating minister as ensure and certain hope of a joyful resurrection. Same palsied as I write, and my blood chills in my veins when I think that she died as I had seen her, peaceless and hopeless. Whatever, therefore, be the language of man, the decree of God is irreversible. They that have done evil shall come forth to the resurrection of damnation. Reader, do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatsoever a man sows, that shall he also reap. For he that sows to the flesh shall of the flesh reap corruption. But he that sows to the Spirit shall of the Spirit reap life everlasting. The Apostate The writer was well acquainted with Robert, late of Maryland, whose brief history is here given. At the age of about twenty, he became anxious for his soul, and convinced that the course he had before pursued, if persisted in, would lead to endless misery. With this conviction, he resolved to seek the Lord while he might be found, and it was not long before he thought he had obtained an interest in him and joined the church. For some time his life was apparently consistent with his profession. At length he formed an acquaintance with a gay young lady of great personal attractions, but an entire stranger to religion. And although she was not pleased with his religious profession, yet his family and personal appearance were such that she consented to marriage, thinking that in due time she would be able to cure him of his religious frenzy. She soon commenced the attempt. At first she urged that, if they wished to be thought well of by their friends, they ought not to refuse to join him at places of diversion and amusement, that he must know how persons of his inclination were despised by people of respectability, and that he had so much reading and praying in his house, the neighbors laughed at him. In short, said she, I married you to be happy, but I utterly despair of happiness unless you give up your religion and be like other people. He told her that happiness was what he wanted, but he never found it in the way that she had proposed. That a happiness which sprung from the customs and pleasures of this world was not sustainable, though for the present it might be sweet, in the end it would be bitter as death. Having found these efforts unavailing to obtain her purpose, she refused to attend family devotion. He wept, grieved, and in secret often prayed for her. She continued to employ every stratagem which her wicked imagination could invent. At length, wearied by her constant opposition and persecution, he resolved he would try to get to heaven alone, as she would not go with him, and determined to attend his private devotions and omit those of the family. His wife, however, pursued him to his closet. 
and succeeding in driving him to the relinquishment of every religious duty. And now he forsook God, and God forsook him. The native corruptions of a wicked heart began to stir within him, and rage till they broke out in greater excesses than he had ever been guilty of before. Sometime after this he heard a sermon in which his sins were brought fully to his remembrance. He then renewedly promised to serve the Lord, let him meet with ever so much opposition, but the obstacles were greater than he supposed. He found himself in the hands of the enemy with less ability to resist temptation than he had before. He was like a man who bound, while asleep struggles, but cannot free himself, groans under his bondage and strives for liberty, but strives in vain. At this juncture his wife redoubled her efforts and gained her point a second time. He continued sinning with little remorse, until having lost all desire for the means of grace, and entirely forsaken the company of the people of God, he gave himself up to the customs and maxims of the world. Having not the least regard to external morality, when at length he was laid on a bed of affliction, and his life was despaired of, now his fears were alarmed. His sins appeared in dreadful colors before him, and such was the sense of his guilt that he dared not look to God for mercy. How can I, he said, accept that God will pardon me when I have run contrary to his will, grieved his spirit, send away all the peace I once enjoyed and have gone further since my apostasy than ever I did before I named his name. Oh, that I had my time to live over again. Oh, that I'd never been born. His disorder increased, and his fears were wrought up to terror. If, he said, God would give me another trial, I would amend my ways. If God will not hear me, perhaps he will hear the prayers of his people on my behalf. O send for them, that they may pray for me. For how can I stand before the avenger of sin in this my lamentable condition? His Christian friends visited him. God appeared to answer their prayers and contrary to expectation he recovered. But as his bodily strength increased, his convictions subsided, and by the time he was fully restored to health, he forgot his danger and actually returned to all his former vices. Some years after his recovery, I fell in company with him, and we entered into close conversation on the state of his soul. I asked him what he thought would be his destiny if he died in his present state. Why, he said, as sure as God is in heaven, I will be damned. Well, I said, do you mean to die in this state? Do you never think of changing your course of life? My friend, he said, I have no desire to serve God. I have no desire for anything that is good. To tell you the truth, I as much believe that my damnation is sealed as that I am now conversing with you. I remember the very time when the Spirit of God departed from me. And what may surprise you more than all, I am no more troubled about it than if there were no God to punish sin, and no hell to punish sinners in. I was struck speechless at his narration. It is not in my power to describe my feelings. Just a note from this narrator. If you doubt that these things can happen, I also have the confirmation, at least by Spurgeon, if you will read his sermon which I have narrated called A Blast Against False Peace. But I continue. The bold indifference which marked his features and the hardness of heart displayed by him were truly shocking. After I parted with him, my meditations were engaged upon the awful subject. Lord, I thought, with whom have I been conversing? 
an immortal spirit clothed with flesh and blood who appears to be sealed over to eternal damnation. A man who once had a day of grace and the offer of mercy, but now appears to be lost, forever lost. To him the door of heaven is shut, never more to be opened. He once had it in his power to accept salvation. And because he did not improve his time and talents and grieve the spirit, God has judicially taken them all away and given him over to blindness of mind. He is neither moved by mercy nor terrified by judgment. About two years after this, he was laid upon the bed of death. His conscience roared like thunder against him, and his every sense appeared to be awake, to torment him. His sickness was short, and his end was awful. His Christian friends visited him and desired to administer comfort, but he was comfortless. They told him that perhaps he was mistaken. It was not so bad with him as he imagined. Ah, he said, would to God I was mistaken. Happy would it be for me. But can I be mistaken about my sickness? Is it imagination which confines me here? Are my pains imaginary? No, no, they're a reality. And I am as certain of my damnation as of my pains. Some persons offered to pray with him, but he forbade it and charged him not to attempt it. For, he said, that moment that you attempt to lift up your hearts to God on my behalf, I feel the flames of hell kindle in my soul. You might as well pray for Satan as for me. You would have as much success. Do you think to force God? Do you think to force the gates of heaven which are barred by justice against me? Never. Your prayers shall return upon your own head. I want none of them. The distress of his mind seemed to make him forget the pains of his body and he continued in nearly the same situation till the day of his death. All that Christians or Christian ministers could say to him made no impression. He never asked one to pity or pray for him. Just before his departure, after he had been rolling from side to side for some time with horror depicted in every feature, he called to his wife to bring him a cup of cold water, for he said, In one hour I shall be where I shall never get another drop. She brought him the water. He drank it with greediness and reached back the cup with a trembling hand. Then staring her in the face, his eyes flashing with terror, he cried out, Rebecca, Rebecca, you are the cause of my eternal damnation. He turned over and with an awful groan left the world to enter upon the untried realities of a dread eternity. Beloved reader, meditate on this narrative. Do not be conformed to this world. Do not yield to the temptations of the adversary of your soul. Fear much lest the promise being left you of entering into the rest of the people of God. You come short of it, in a hardened and penitent sinner, or a self-ruined backslider, finally, inherit the portion of the hypocrite and the unbeliever, where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched and where the backslider will be filled with his own way. A Young Woman Several of the preceding narratives show how awful is the hour of death to those who deny the Lord who bought them. But it is not those only who advance thus far in iniquity that feel the bitterness of death. To many who have borne the sacred name of Christian, the hour of dissolution is an hour of dismay and would be so to everyone who has reached that solemn period, negligent of the great salvation, 
If the soul were sensible of its own state and awoken to the contemplation of eternal realities, let the young and careless seriously read the impressive account that follows. And while they read it, think of their latter end. Bathed in tears, a girl came about three months ago to tell me that her sister was dying and wished much to see me. The poor woman, who has arrived at life's tremendous verge, was only about thirty years of age. Her circumstances were lowly, but her mind was better informed than that of most of her rank. She had been educated at a Sunday school and having a remarkably good voice. It attended the chapel with the singers till her marriage. At this period, she not only knew much of her Bible, but also gave some pleasing symptoms of a change of mind. But alas, she gave her hand to a young man who was destitute of the fear of God and who became a snare to her. How many that in youth promise fair to be the followers of Jesus and are ruined by improper marriages? Oppressed with domestic cares, poor Mary now neglected even an occasional attendance on the means of grace. She had run well, as we suppose, but sin deceived her. Daily misery, however, preyed on a constitution at all times delicate. A dropsy threatened her with death. No sooner was she confined to the bed of affliction than she recollected the truths which once she took delight in learning. She remembered God and was troubled. Her neglect of those things which she well knew belonged to her eternal peace filled her mind with anguish. I'd been with her the day before. How bitterly did she then lament her conduct. How hard she found the way of the transgressor. I reminded her of what John says, if any man sin. We have an advocate with the Father. She seemed a little encouraged to expect mercy. We engaged in prayer and parted. But now she was evidently dying. As I entered the room, I beheld a face distorted with pain and heard an exclamation distressing enough to pierce any heart. Oh, I cannot die. I want to see his face. Never did I enter so fully into the importance of Balaam's prayer. Let me die the death of the righteous and let my last end be like his. I asked her whose face she wished to see. Her reply was a reconciled face of Jesus. Have you no hope of an interest in Christ? I inquired. No, I have no hope. I'm lost. I cannot die. How I long for some careless people whom I know to witness the end of one who had neglected, and that against the dictates of her own conscience a great salvation. The writer of this account then endeavored to point her to the blood of Jesus. Oh, she exclaimed, that I had an interest in that blood. He soon after left the room with feelings not to be described, and in a few minutes she expired. But let those who have enjoyed religious instruction in youth and afterward neglected the Savior and salvation, consider what miseries they are preparing for themselves hereafter. Or well, let them remember her, whose last words almost were, Oh, I cannot die, I cannot die. <laughs>